square to this get over here. This is this. Am I correct? This is this? No. No? Nope. What is it? This is that, I think. No, this no, is that. No, that is that. <laughs> no. Oh, no, that's that. Yeah, correct. So what's this? So that's not this? <laughs> We're playing, what, yeah, I want to smack this symbology in the face. Okay. Yeah. Welcome to Which Game First, where we boldly explore the hilariously huge world of board games. Did we unearth any hidden treasures you've been missing out on? Let's find out. First up this week, we build our civilization with dogmatic fervor while keeping a close eye on our neighbors in innovation. Next, our noble patricians seize the farms, villas, and fountains to get the most prestigious district in Carpe Diem. And lastly, we predict the market and sweep it with oracle-like precision that leads us to riches in executive decision. I'm your host, Celeste Angelis. Now let's meet the rest of our brave and intrepid panel. Hello, I'm Evan Bernstein. The square root of 64 is 8. I'm at Ovalitis, and 8-bit can store 256 possible values. I'm Joe Unfrey. And 1,729 can be identified as the sum of two cubes in two different ways, as the cube of 1 added to the cube of 12 and the cube of 9 added to the cube of 10. This makes 1,729 one of the taxicab numbers first identified by mathematical prodigy Srinivasa Ramanujan. Whoa. Whoa. That doesn't, <laughs> doesn't leave Mike with a whole lot to say, does it? No. Mike? <laughs> Mike? Mike. Mike. He's, he's, speech, he's speechless. <laughs> Mike is away this week, everyone, so on to the show. Hey, Evan, how can people get access to our post-show podcast where we talk even more about gaming and gaming-adjacent topics? Well, Celeste, everyone can access the post-show. It comes as part of your patron membership. So if you'd like to become a patron of our show, just go to our website and click on Become a Supporter today. And if you get a chance, please leave a review, like, or rating anywhere on the web. Thank you so much for listening. Our first game up this week is Innovation, designed by Carl Chudik, published by Osmati Games in 2010. Number of players, 2 to 4, ages 14 and up, playtime 30 to 60 minutes. Okay, when we spotted this game on the horizon, what were our first thoughts? Evan? Innovation! What else need be said? That was my first thought. Ed? A card-based tech race? Will I play these cards left, or will I play them right? Joe? I see a lot of cards that represent successive ideas, creations, inventions. I can't wait to see how they fit together. So much text on these cards, and so much clip art. Is this a prototype? But before we finalize this review, Evan, tell us a little bit about how it's played. In innovation, each player builds a civilization using cards with technologies, ideas, and cultural advancements on them. Each card has a unique power, which will allow further advancements, point scoring, or attacking other civilizations. Sometimes, the cards require you to share their innovations with other players, so be careful when you use them, as other players may benefit from your ideas as well. To win, you must score achievements by scoring points or gaining them directly from innovations. So, yeah, let's just get right into the look of this game. 
Whoa, the primitive are on these cards. I was really worried. So I just want to tell the audience <laughs> not to panic. It looks much more textbooky than it is. Actually, when I started reading those dogma effects on each card, I was really excited. They were all interesting. Every card is unique. It has a different ability, and they do feel different. On each card, there's a dogma effect. Our dogmas come in two different flavors. They're demand, so I demand you do this. And then there are other things as well. Since I have this great uh, symbol, I can do this. If anybody has as many or the same amount, they may share in this ability. I loved that. I love that technology advanced along the lines of if a civilization next to yours had similar advancements, they could kind of steal from you or crib your tech mm -hmm. from you. And that makes perfect sense. It really gave me a feel of global society. Dogma was my favorite part of the game. Sadly, I failed to read the advice about getting a strong hold over several of the different symbols, which is critically important in the beginning. It makes you more effective in dogmatic conflicts against your fellow players. Well, usually you have a couple of different options. Uh, some people are going to look at their the cards or abilities they have and they'll try to get more symbols out, or their dogmas will allow them to get more score points, and that'll get them a lead in achievement. But usually if you're getting achievements, you're not building your tableau. When we talk about symbols, we're actually talking about that thing I'm calling clip art. The symbols are very <laughs> important. You had to stack your cards based on color, but if you got to the splay effect, you got to spread all that same color out in one direction to give you more symbology, which essentially means more tech. The more symbols that you had, the more advanced your civilization was. And it allows for you to change your strategy pretty often as needed. Let's say I'm going for factories, and I notice Celeste might also be going for factories. Well, with a few cards and a strategic splay, I can go from being, you know, heavy in factories to, say, heavy in light bulbs, which will give me an advantage now over Celeste in that particular area. And you can do it pretty quickly. You can do it really quickly. Like, all of a sudden, one turn, Evan's going from, like, two light bulbs, where I'm like, oh, I can go ahead and do light bulb effects all day long because nobody can share in them. Ha, ha, ha. And then all of a sudden, Evan's got 10 times more than I have, thanks to the splay. You got to pay close attention to what your opponents are doing. That's part of the one of the great aspects of this game. Keeps you in on every hand all the time, even if it's not your turn specifically. You really do have to pay attention as to what everyone else is doing so you can maximize your own advantages. Yeah, so things can move very quickly. And on the flip side of that splay, some things can go wrong and you can go from having a lot of one tech to not having a lot of that same tech. Um, that mm -hmm. happened to me. Like I went, I was heavily reduced in one of the symbols. I think it might have been the crown effects. And that all of a sudden I couldn't do those effects anymore without everybody sharing. And you don't want that because basically that just means everybody's getting advanced as much as you. But you do get a slight advantage in having other people share with you. You get to draw an extra card after everybody's done it. You also need those cards in order to score. Mm -hmm. So that scoring builds up to the point where you can start collecting achievements, and then achievements are a path to victory. Since you mentioned achievements, I'd like to point out that out of all of the actions you can take, dogma is really the most complicated one by far. Meld, achieve, and score are all very simple. 
Yeah. And yet the dogma is so interesting that I did not mind that it was complicated. Um, and they're all written out completely for you on the cards, which I liked a lot too. That way I didn't have to check any rules. I didn't have to wonder about anything. Everything was very cleanly written on these cards. Yeah. Clean. It's a clean game. That's a good word for it, Celeste. Yeah. Most of the complexity in there is just trying to adapt to the changes because the game changes every turn. Everybody's melding stuff now. They're achieving new things. No, even getting being forced to meld something might be seem like an advantage, but now all of a sudden you covered up the technology that was pummeling everybody. Yeah, things change fast in this game. I love that too. Uh, it has that effect that Evan loves where people get to go on other people's turns because of the dogma sharing. And uh, that was always fun, you know, hoping that somebody would do something you could get involved in that you could, you know, you could <laughs> sort of have a piggyback on. This is not a game about just sort of zoning out, waiting for your turn to come around again. Even drawing cards is exciting. And the reason is because the cards themselves advance the eras. So you can choose from the first era, the second era, the third era, but you have to wait until all the first era cards are gone in order to get to the second era. So I am gonna draw three sixes and then reveal them and hope for the best. What is, uh, okay. Boom! Oh. Boom! <laughs> the double color. Early on, I caught on that if I could delay drawing those new cards you know, long enough, I could get my opponents to pick up the last cards of an earlier area, you know, leaving the cards of the next level's advancements just for me. But beware, occasionally you'll have to throw some of those low cards back into the yeah. active circulation, and then the rules say you'll have to go to some of those cards sometime. So be aware of that. Or someone will have to. <laughs> That's right. <Not laughs> yeah. you, Joe. Well, it's interesting how the the card ability, the dogmas ramp up. It's like, wow, you're looking at some of these and say, that's pretty powerful. And then you go up to the next level and you're like, whoa, that's even more crazy. <laughs> I really felt connected to the world and as if I was moving forward in time. It achieves those two things. Mm -hmm. I did do some bashing on the art, but I do want to say that we played uh, the first version of this game is that right ed that is the first edition correct and this and then there's an aiello edition that is much prettier out now for pretty much the same price well i actually would recommend getting the innovation deluxe edition Ooh. which is similar oh. to the first edition but it has nicer graphics so this is a game about building a civilization and i wonder if i had ever played any of the Sid Meier civilization games, like the computer game or the board games, would this have seemed more familiar to me? Because right now it seems ingenious. Celeste, I would answer no to that because a cornerstone of Sid Meier's civilization series is based largely on setting differences apart in the terms of special powers, like the Spanish civilization can do things better than others can and you know, the, the Greeks have things they can do. And here, if you wanted to call yourself the Greek civilization, I suppose you could, but it wouldn't change the gameplay at all. Right. Interesting. Okay. Another key difference is the tech tree in Civilization, the computer game. It's the same. Everybody goes up the same tech tree. While here, every card is unique and only one person had robotics at the same time. No, not only one person had robotics, not everybody. Yeah, I, I love how this game grows the technology. It goes forward. It can even go a little bit backward as the civilization becomes more interested in something else. It's fascinating. Yeah, that's that's very true. In some of the Sid Meier games, if you don't develop knights, you never get gunpowder. 
you know, it's not completely logical, but here the ideas sort of flow into each other. Okay, explorers, get your shovels out. It's time to dig up or bury innovation. Ed? This game had great strategic and tactical elements, and I love the theme of the game. Just dig it up. Joe? Want to know why I'm digging this up? There's no strategy that works every time. Evan? Lots of paths to victory, allowing for shifting strategies midstream. That's a good game. Dig it up. I was pleasantly surprised by the highly social playability of this word-heavy game. I was busy and engaged the entire duration. You can find this game online for 17 to 30 bucks. And if you have thoughts about innovation, let us know. We are at Which Game First on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Our next game up this week is Carpe Diem, designed by Stefan Feld, published by Alia and Ravensburger in 2018. Number of players 2 to 4, ages 10 and up, playtime 45 to 75 minutes. Okay, when we unearthed this find, what were our first impressions? Evan? This game is set in Rome. Gee, my Latin is a little rusty. Ed? I'm looking forward to checking out this new Spiel nominee for Malaya. Joe. What do all these shapes mean? What patterns do they fit into? And are those fish? When I looked at the complex scoring conventions in this game, I had scary flashbacks to Economics 301. But before we seize the review, Evan, tell us a little bit about how it's played. Oh, clever, Celeste. (laughs) Very clever. In Carpe Diem, you are influential patricians setting out to improve your district in Rome by building landscapes for food, dwellings for tradesmen, and of course, villas suitable to your prestige. The game consists of four phases of seven rounds each. Each turn, you will try to add a building tile to your district from a dwindling supply each round. There's a second scoring period at the end of each phase where you'll attempt to turn your accomplishments into victory points. But each pair of scoring cards can only be used once per game, so be sure to seize the day. Carpe Diem is um, number 18 in the popular Alea Big Box series. So what kind of games does Alea do? Other games in the series include Ra, which is number one, Taj Mahal, number three, Puerto Rico, number seven, Mm. The Castles of Burgundy, number 14, and about a third of these were designed by Stefan Feld. Interesting. Wow, it's like uh, traveling the world, basically, playing all these games, essentially. Uh, It's a very popular series, particularly in Germany. Are they similar play styles, Ed? A lot of them are classic Euro games, much like this one. Um, But each one definitely has a different theme, a different uh, play feel to it, I think. I would not compare this game to, say, Puerto Rico. I think they're both very different games. But they're both definitely classic Euro games. And uh, the cover art is in the the classic style of all the others in this series. Yes, I like the covers on these games. They are very similar. They have the title written in a unique font for the game right up top. It has like a nice sort of photography, faux finish background, and then a really nice piece of art uh, representing the era that the game is being played in I like the early choice of deciding what I was going to build big and what I was going to build small. I went for a humongous villa with 11 chimneys, and that was sort of my saving grace in the scoring department. I did like that everybody got their own board, and we chose from communal tiles in the center. And when I first opened the game and looked at it, I thought, 
oh, okay, I can get 10 points right here as long as I build a garden across these two cubes. For a person who builds spreadsheets a lot in their life, this to me felt like getting rewarded for putting together your spreadsheet really well. So I, <laughs> I enjoyed that a lot. Yeah, what I think is cool about the, the tile market is that it's a dwindling supply. At the end of each round, all the tiles will be gone. So, and you go through four rounds of this. Yeah, it's slim pickings as you get down in rounds. It's like, oh man, there goes the last villa tile. Now I'll never complete my villa. Uh, I really need those grapes. I need to expand my villa. Oh no. If you don't get a tile that allows you to complete your area, you don't get to score it. <gasps> Nothing? You get zero points because nobody wants to buy your half-built villa. <laughs> Half a built villa is better than no built villa. <laughs> I found the scoring mechanism very interesting. At the end of every round, there's a place where you have to pick a scoring location, and there's a grid of four by four cards. So every pair of cards is an opportunity to score. So you're looking through this display trying to find a pair of cards that you can score and get your points. But each pairing is only available once per game. So you're, in a way, hoping, like, I'm building toward this, and I hope no one takes that, because that's the one that can get me the points. Mm -hmm. That sideboard is an exercise in frustration for exactly that <laughs> reason. Those types of methods for scoring really do make the game unpleasant for me. It's basically a constant disappointment, right? So you're, oh, can't get that one. Oh, that one's gone. Can't get that one. Oh, that one's gone. So you're basically successively disappointed into getting less points. It didn't give me a warm and fuzzy feeling. I'll say that. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> I got one piece of bread and a chicken. I'm not in a good, I'm not in a good not, that's, not am, a, that's not a great starting point. I am not in a good spot. <laughs> I'm about to hemorrhage one. victory points. Yeah. So basically, I'm going to lose eight victory points right now. Well, I guess for me, I thought it made it, unlike most Euros, it made it feel very competitive to me. I'm really trying to, to eke out and get the spot that's perfect for me. Yes, and you're, you are very patient when it comes to incremental successes. And that is not a thing that I'm good at. <laughs> <laughs> Thematically, I've seen so many games in stores and at conventions and everywhere else about the grandeur and the glory of Rome, you know, and it's nice to settle down into a shallow dive of how regular people like Varinus and Titus Pillow from HBO Rome would have thought about building their homes. Yeah, I've got a new game coming out, Joe, called The Slums of Rome. <laughs> That's an expansion uh, and, set. And it had, that was about half of Rome, I think, at the height of it. And the, and the sewers of Rome. <laughs> so that, that's a, it's a multi-layered game, you know. Every game, you're going to have different cards in a scoring position. And then, even though the, the sideboard card where the tiles that make your frame, they're random there, too. Everybody gets a random set of four frames to make your player board. It was also frustrating watching the tiles disappear. Watching them go away is, is an exercise in disappointment. I found it actually kind of interesting because all the tiles come out every game. So there's no, like, oh, some game tiles are removed from the game and won't be in it. All the tiles are actually going to see play. Uh, so if you get really good at this game, you'll know what the combinations are. It's one of the reasons why I'm looking forward to play again, because I want to see the combination come out. Now that I understand how the game works, I want to see, okay, can I actually optimize and actually get a really kicking score? Okay, explorers, it's time to dig up or bury Carpe Diem. Joe? 
I'm digging it up because I got to build a fancy little house in an upscale neighborhood. Sure, today we think of the Romans as politicians and warriors, but their real strength was real estate management. Evan? Well, a building game with a limit on resources, highly competitive. I can't wait to try it. Ed? This is a solid Euro game. It is surprisingly competitive and designed with high variable setup. I'll dig it up for my collection. <laughs> Even though I won this game, mainly because I focused on the border points on my own board, I found the pacing a little dull and its scoring conventions frustrating, so I'm going to have to bury it for me. Ed, where can you find this game? This game is generally available at local hobby stores and online. Retail for about 45 bucks. If you have thoughts about Carpe Diem, let us know. We are at Which Game First on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Our last game up this week is Executive Decision, published by 3M for their bookshelf series in 1971. Number of players, 2 to 6, ages 12 and up, playtime 90 minutes. Okay, when we brush the sands away from this find, what were our first thoughts? Evan? A chart-heavy game? I must be in one of Joe's dreams. Ed? A market-based trading game that models supply and demand? And it has a grief marker. Sold. Joe? Is that Don Draper on the box cover? Nah, these guys are way too serious to be writing ads. They're the bottom line guys. Nothing like the cover of a 3M bookshelf series game to remind us of the white male privilege heyday of the 60s. But before we shake up a martini and sit down on our red Naugahyde lounge chairs to review this game, Evan, tell us how it's played. Maybe not red Naugahyde. It could be leather. It could be actual genuine leather. We don't know. It looks like Naugahyde on the back of the box. Feels like Naugahyde. <laughs> squeak, squeak. <laughs> All right. In the questionably titled game, Executive Decision, more on that later, first, you decide on what finished goods you want to sell and how much based on your capital. Based on your capital, you buy the raw materials necessary to do it. You combine raw materials to make finished goods, and then you sell the finished goods. You have to bid on the purchase price of the raw materials and the sales price of the finished goods. When supply exceeds demand, the prices drop. When demand exceeds supply, the prices rise. If you bid less than the going price, you get a big zero. Nothing. <laughs> oh, brutal. So those are the basics of the game. Yeah. It, <laughs> yeah, you want to buy low and sell high. How about the fact that that grease pencil sitting in that box since 1971 still worked just fine? Oh, are you kidding? That grease pencil is going to outlive us all. <laughs> <laughs> it was great opening this box and unfolding that chart and being like, what? That thing looked bananas. It was just boxes <laughs> and numbers and like A, B, Sea goods. It, I mean, nothing remotely interesting on that entire chart. Well, you're speaking for yourself there. I was like, yeah, this was cool. <laughs> and I have never seen anybody play tight margins as well in my life. You are a master at handling these types of incremental successes. Holy cow. You've got 82 in there. Uh, Celeste is going to crush right, us here. Go ahead. No, I'm not. Where's I, your, I where's your so fine bread? Last turn. Standard bid, he missed. I missed my bid. I missed 22. I missed it by one. Standard bid. 23. Oh, Ed, oh, Ed got Ed all got three bids. What a surprise. 69, 70. It's going to be manufacturing his little butt off. Look at that. 
this game really taught me how tiny the margins can be in manufacturing. <laughs> yeah, if you pay too much for your goods, yeah. But if you pay just the right price, mwah, profit. Right, but you also have to anticipate what your competitors are also doing, and that's the challenge. But if you know your players well enough, you may have an advantage there. Yeah, exactly. You're going to look at Ed, and you're going to be like, this guy's going for some sort of balanced approach. Although I was shocked, <laughs> Evan, when you came out swinging with these huge buys in one market. So in this game, you have three markets. Extra fine goods, fine goods, and standard goods. You have to first buy them where everybody secretly writes their stuff down on a paper chart that they give you. So now, mm-hmm. not they only have a are nice we. Pad. Yes, it comes in a whole pad of paper charts you fill in for each month because each mm-hmm. turn is a month January, February, et cetera. Um, and I love the little paper sheet they gave you. It was very well organized. I love me some some organized sheets. And then you had the other chart that you had to reference, which was the universal chart of the market, which we used the grease pencil on. It was a big blue chart. So you could buy one of the goods or all of the goods up to nine goods per turn total. Well, it depends on the number of players. Right. That's right. So you could throw it all, you could throw all your purchases to extra fine, but you would drive the price way up. So I was really shocked. Evan completely skewed the market by going for these huge purchases in one place. That could almost be a strategy to drive up the price for your competitors. Hmm. Yep. The thing that really got me, which was interesting about this game, was the arrangements of how you could manufacture. So you could not manufacture with just standard goods. That's right. You needed to have at least one fine material, along with the more common materials, to make the lowest base product that you were trying to sell. Yeah, the buyers over at the Cadillac plant aren't going to take your... You know, your garbage parts. <laughs> well, I think what they're going for was the requirement to have multiple types of materials in order to make something rather than just a single type. Right. Right. Or you could just go for the extra fine stuff, but you're paying top dollar. Mm-hmm. And if you start using your extra fine stuff to downgrade it to the fine level or the common level, you're way overpaying for those. For yeah, those we are units. way overpaying. That's a, that's a huge waste of money. But you can do it. Yeah, if you were like throwing money away in a in a tight money game, sure. <laughs> that is a strategy. I didn't say winning strategy. I mean, the, the heart of the strategy of this game is that you know players influence supply and demand on you know each other, and yes. you know sometimes inadvertently and sometimes to their own detriment. And that's where you have to be careful. You have to anticipate that because your bid, you know, if if you bid over, you're not enough. You know, you're not going to get your stuff. You're going to come away you're going to come away with zeros in some of these rounds and once you get behind in this game it's hard to make up ground. The tighter you go for the margin, the more profit you'll make, but it's also the higher risk that you'll miss an opportunity and it's hard to find out opportunity again once you miss it. I would say if people played this game over and over again, the same group, it would get more interesting because you'd learn strategies. Um but I think in a, in a real market, people wouldn't be switching up strategies quite as much as we would, you know, no, because in the not. market, you would grow to learn who your competitors were and how they operated. But I think companies in general are going to look for opportunity to make money. I mean, if they notice uh, certain raw materials are overpriced, they're going to look for other materials that are 
more reasonably priced. Yes, I agree. I think what I was saying was you'd learn what the other executives were like. You'd start to learn their approaches if something got expensive. Determine any patterns, how they play. Yeah. Which is why I like throwing in a monkey wrench every once in a while. It's like, all right, I'll, I'll bid all my units on common stuff and really drive the price up. Yeah. <laughs> so that way everybody underbids it. No one gets it. <laughs> well, you can do the opposite. You can actually choose to stay out of a market in order for the price to drop and then come into it next turn. But unlike a real market, I felt like this was basically pencil in and pray. At least it was for me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I felt like I had what, no handle on what the other people were going to do. What do you mean that's not like a real market, Celeste? <laughs> My market consists of you, t- you open the newspaper, you take the stock page, you put it on the dartboard, <laughs> and you... Th- Put a blindfold on. You start throwing some darts around. What? Yeah, there's my there's my portfolio advice. Yeah, <laughs> Celeste. I noticed in our second game, you actually were getting right on the money on the market. But I do think a lot of it is based on how other people behave, not so much how good you are with the numbers. And so, you know, Evan was bananas in this game. So <laughs> if you have a, if you have an upstart like that in the market, it's challenging. Well, what I like about this game is it reminds me a little bit of an 18xx game in the sense that there's no randomness in the game except for other players' actions. Well, I'll tell you this. The charts themselves and the way you got points in this game certainly felt safer from a market standpoint than Carpe Diem did. (laughs) (laughs) And I do want to talk about the awesome covers of these 3M bookshelf games. Holy cow. I mean, I did make a joke about white male privilege, but I'm just going to give you a list of game covers in this series. And you should absolutely go online and just type in 3M bookshelf series game covers. Quinto, Hybid, Twixt, Foil, that guy actually had a Hugh Hefner smoking jacket on. Oh, my God. <laughs> Breakthrough, Stocks and Bonds, and Acquire. All of them. <laughs> wow. 3M sure knew their target audience, didn't they? <laughs> they knew who controlled the money in the household, that's for sure. And not even the cover. It's the rest of the artwork. The back art of Executive Decision, though, I mean, it shows you just one of these gentleman club rooms with the the red, you know, chairs with the brass buttons. You know, it just so it screams, screams like Mad Men, basically. They are amazing snapshots of the era. Definitely. They all have drinks, too. Did you notice that? Like every one of them had alcohol. What we're seeing on the back of that box is the club chair because I did a little research on that. Now, here, here's a post I found from the Internet. This was written back in 2003, but this is cool. I want to read this as it was written. The club in club chair harks back to the gentleman's club in the 19th century England, where a gentleman could go to get away from his household, including women folk. <laughs> Once there, he would sink into a well-upholstered leather chair and relax with a drink and perhaps a cigar. The names of the fashionable London streets full of such clubs are still used to name classic club chairs, such as the St. James and the Piccadilly, and so on. <laughs> Those are the names of the club chairs. I mean, jeez. <laughs> Get away oh. from the household, including women folk. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> women there's folk a, as if they're their own species. <laughs> there's a great Ivor Novello song from the 20s that 
sings about this particular thing. He could, the guy could not get away from his mother-in-law, so he went to the club for a bath and a rub. <laughs> okay, explorers, get your shovels out. It's time to dig up or bury executive decision. Ed? The gameplay is a little bit dry, but I'm going to dig it up as a classic game on buying low and selling high. Joe? For times when I want to engage the left side of my brain, where all the math lives exclusively, I'll dig it up. Evan? Well, it's not exactly a hit for game night with family or friends, (laughs) unless they all really dig math and a little bit of gambling. But absent that, not enough here. I have to bury it. It is a nice peek into the potential brutally incremental margins of manufacturing, but I didn't feel like there was much else going on. I, too, will have to bury it. Evan, where can you find it? There are copies to be had online at your favorite used game site. I paid $15 for ours. If you have thoughts about executive decision, we would love to hear from you. We are at Which Game First on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you would like more perks and content from our show, including our brand new podcast, The Post Show, for just $3 a month, you can go to our website and click on Become a Supporter today. If you get a chance, please leave us a rating or review anywhere on the internet. It really helps others find the show. Join our chat on our Discord server. We are at Which Game First, and our Patreon supporters get access to exclusive channels. Happy gaming, everyone! And remember, it's not a club chair if it doesn't have those brass rivets. Hey, is that George Bush on the cover? Which George Bush? <laughs> <laughs>